Over the last week, I've spent a lot of time diving into the work of David Ogilvy, and this podcast is going to cover the three big ideas that I learned from Ogilvy. And in case you don't want to listen, the TLDR version is that David Ogilvy wants advertisers to do their homework, come up with big ideas, and, quote, work like a son of a bitch, end quote. In 1962, Time Magazine called David Ogilvy, quote, the most sought-after wizard in today's advertising industry, end quote. We're still attentive to his work because it still works. A peer of Ogilvy's was Bill Burnback. Burnback was responsible for some of the iconic Volkswagen ads of the time. He said, quote, Human nature hasn't changed for a billion years. It won't even vary in the next billion years. A communicator must be concerned with the unchanging man, what compulsions drive him, what instincts dominate his every action, even though his language, too, often camouflages what really motivates him, end quote. What Birnbach is saying here is that human nature doesn't change. This is something that Charlie Munger has mentioned as well when he talks about why Robert Cialdini's book is so influential to him is because Cialdini found these things, these influences in our lives that really remain consistent across time. It's also why we talk about heuristics and biases on this podcast, because some of the things that we evolved to do really well don't fit like perfect puzzle pieces in the modern world. And Ogilvy matters because he figured out what matters. He focused his ads on sales, not fluff. He relied on field work, not guesswork. He built a community of collaborators, not rivals. How did he do this? In one of his books, he wrote that there were five things that helped him achieve material success. One, he's the most objective man who's ever lived. He sees things clearly through the researcher's eye. Two, he says he's a very hard worker. Three, he's a good salesman. Four, he had a reasonably original mind, and he thought his clients thought. And five, he had a gimmick. He claims his English accent helped differentiate him from the ordinary. These five things did lead to the creation of one of the greatest advertising agencies in the world. But material success isn't everything. Ogilvy warned, quote, Stop thinking about success entirely in terms of material achievements and careers and all that stuff, and think of success in terms of happiness, end quote. Much of Ogilvy's material is from after his peak as an admin. This is... Ogilvy reflecting on his work, reflecting on his life, reflecting on everything that he's done. And so we get a sort of uh, glow to his point of view. Happiness metrics like Ogilvy advocates are immune to fumbled accounts or sales dips. Though focused on happiness, that doesn't mean Ogilvy was always happy. That kind of reflection, like we said, only comes when you've had time to reflect on. For most of his career, he was, quote, terrified for many years that it would blow away, end quote. But it didn't blow away. Ogilvy and Mather is a global brand builder. The company's success is due to following David's advice to, quote, don't bunt, try to hit the ball out of the park, compete with the immortals, try to get ideas, great ideas no one has had before, end quote. And Ogilvy himself was happy because he enjoyed the process more than the product. He really loved his work. From his writings, talks, letters, and speeches, we'll focus on three things for any organization. 
One, you have to research and understand your customer. Ogilvy was fond of saying, the customer isn't an idiot, she's your wife. And anytime you think someone does something for a stupid or idiotic reason, it means you don't understand them. That doesn't mean you agree with them. It just means you don't understand them. The second is to create advertisements around big ideas. Good ads create curiosity and intrigue. Big ideas stand out. The third thing that Ogilvy did really well is that he groomed his culture. He tried to hire what he called gentlemen with brains. And that, as I interpret it, was this idea of an upstanding person who was going to be intellectually curious and intellectually honest. Before devouring these three big ideas, we should first set the table with another trio. Background information and a pair of formative jobs for Ogilvy, how to balance an ego, and what it means to have a good education. David Ogilvy was born in 1911. The first employment scar or medal pinned to his breast was when he worked in a French kitchen. It was hard work. Ogilvy worked six days a week, 10 hours a day, and he recalled that on his day off, he would just sit around and let his mind and body recover. But he learned things in the kitchen. The master chef was a monster of a man. Ogilvy recalls that he fired people on the spot. But from him, Ogilvy learned the importance of competency. He writes, quote, To begin with, he was the best cook in the whole brigade, and we knew it. Years later, he would reflect on this and write, quote, I could apply the same kind of leadership to the management of my advertising agency, end quote. So he saw this head chef that was in charge and demanding, who had had the, the, the walk to back up the talk. And so that was really influential on Ogilvy. And the second early career experience that had a profound effect was after he immigrated to the United States and began to work for George Gallup at Princeton. Gallup is the namesake of the Gallup Poll, and he conducted research on movies and consumer patterns. Ogilvy learned how to predict film attendance before a movie's release. He wrote, quote, In particular, George Gallup taught me the concept of analyzing the factors which make success in advertising and which factors make for failure, end quote. So with the intensity of a chef and the wisdom of a researcher, Ogilvy headed to New York City. Upon arriving, he wrote, quote, The people on Madison Avenue thought I was nuts, end quote. There's also this idea of ego equilibrium. To start anything requires some amount of ego. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ego is like early stage fuel-only shuttle thrusters. An entrepreneur needs enough ego to escape the pull of gravity or the forces of the market, but too much of this initial force and companies can blow up. Ogilvy's ego equilibrium meant doing the hard work, but also the humility to believe the data over himself. Ogilvy's agency may have been located on Madison Avenue, but it was built on facts. But facts don't mean anything if you don't believe them. Ogilvy looked for people who were, quote, intellectually honest, end quote. When asked how to get a job in the Ogilvy and Mather Research Department, he said, quote, You probably need a degree in statistics or psychology, the ability to write readable reports, and, above all, you must be intellectually honest. A researcher who injects bias into his reports does awful damage, end quote. Early in his career, Ogilvy spent 40% of his time doing research. That's how important it was. People had to believe in the work they did. He wrote, quote, I admire people with first-class brains because you cannot run a great advertising agency without brainy people. But brains are not enough unless they are combined with intellectual honesty, end quote. So you had to be sort of smart enough 
to work for Ogilvy. You didn't have to be brilliant, but you really had to have this hard work and this drive and this curiosity to believe in the facts that you found. One air of advertising that Ogilvy came back to again and again was using research like a drunkard uses a lamppost for support rather than illumination. The best advertisers weren't connected to any particular point of view. They needed an independence that allowed for empathy to sneak in. The best creative people, Ogilvy wrote, are, quote, especially observant and they value accurate observations, telling themselves the truth, more than other people do, end quote. Besides balancing the ego of what I see versus what I believe, Ogilvy wanted his staff to balance their egos with each other. He wanted his managers to hire people that could surpass or complement them. He wrote, quote, If you are strong in production and weak in strategy, have a strategist as your right arm, end quote. But this can be difficult for us to swallow. We have to swallow our pride a little bit and realize we're not great at everything. Ogilvy continued, quote, Who wants to admit, even to himself, that he has no taste or is bored by television production or is inadequate on strategy? Ah, that is the question, end quote. In one letter to his creative heads, Ogilvy asked them for names of employees who could do their jobs, and 11 of them uh, sent a reply back that they didn't have anyone that could do their jobs, and he said in a letter back to those creative heads, something is wrong with your hiring methods. Ogilvy writes, quote, We admire people who hire subordinates who are good enough to succeed them. We pity people who are so insecure that they feel compelled to hire inferior specimens as their subordinates, end quote. In much of his writing, Ogilvy comes off as very confident, bordering on arrogant. And when I first read this, my initial BS detectors went off to think that maybe he was too full of himself. Maybe he didn't have the humility required to understand the full picture. But he soon dispels it this way. Quote, If you detect a slight stench of conceit in this book, I would have you know that my conceit is selective. I am a miserable duffer in everything except advertising. I cannot read a balance sheet, work a computer, ski, sail, play golf, or paint. But when it comes to advertising, Advertising Age says that I am the creative king of advertising. When Fortune published an article about me entitled it, Is David Ogilvy a Genius? I asked my lawyer to sue the editor for the question mark, end quote. Ogilvy is confident because he believes leaders must be confident. He says that great leaders always exude self-confidence. In building his agency, Ogilvy strived for ego equilibrium, both within the self and between people. Which brings us to our last introductory point. Education, but not schooling. Ogilvy was expelled from Oxford, and his story on why varies in different sources. Once he mentions an injury and a surgery, and another time he blames not studying. For whatever the reason, structured school wasn't Ogilvy's cup of tea, black, green, earl, gray, or otherwise. Here are his comments about schooling years later, once he retired. Quote, I am deeply sorry for the present generation of Fedians. That's the school he's addressing. You have to endure the horror of A-levels and O-levels. The masters have to cram you all of facts so that you can pass those odious examinations. This is like cramming corn down the throat of a goose to enlarge his liver. It may produce excellent pâté de foie gras, but it does the goose no permanent good, end quote. When he started Ogilvy in Mather, he looked for people with, quote, well-furnished minds, I don't care if they got it in college or selling newspapers, end quote. 
Self-education was a passion for Ogilvy, especially around advertising. He wrote, quote, For 35 years I have continued on the course charted by Gallup, collecting factors the way other men collect pictures and postage stamps, end quote. To recap those three preliminary thoughts, first was that Ogilvy had these early work experiences that set him down the course. Second was that he tried to balance egos in his agency between people and within people. And third, he was very fond of education, but not necessarily schooling. And that brings us to the three major parts of what we're going to talk about today. Doing research, creating advertising around big ideas, and why culture matters. Do your research. Ogilvy liked to say that his rules weren't really rules at all, but conclusions of the research. If he did something, it wasn't because he liked it. If he did something, he did it because it worked. Early on, this took a lot of his time. He writes, quote, When I started Ogilvy and Mather, I wore two hats. On Thursdays and Fridays, I was the research director. On Mondays, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays, I was the creative director. I was a hermaphrodite, Jekyll and Hyde. The age-old conflict between the creative function and the research function was fought out in my throbbing head, end quote. Ogilvy did much of this research because he wanted to be the best informed person. It was this novel knowledge that pinned Ogilvy and Mather on the map. One example was the Guinness beer advertisement Ogilvy created. It was a Guinness Guide to Oysters posters, and you may have seen it in a bar or a pub. It was an informational, attractive poster with an offer for a free reprint suitable for framing. How did he come up with that? He writes, quote, I read a book on shellfish by a Yale biologist and came up with this advertisement, The Guinness Guide to Oysters, end quote. Did you hear that? He read a book about shellfish to come up with this idea. Another example was a Rolls-Royce ad that claimed, quote, at 60 miles an hour, the loudest noise in this new Rolls-Royce comes from the electric clock, end quote. That line wasn't a line at all. Ogilvy unearthed it from a 20-year-old English automobile magazine during a three-week deep dive on the company. That kind of research was worth it to Ogilvy because, quote, the more you know about the product, the more likely you are to come up with a big idea for selling it, end quote. During his agency's infancy, Ogilvy did much of this work. Paying for it was just too expensive for him, but that was okay, he writes, quote, informal conversations with half a dozen housewives can sometimes help a copywriter more than formal surveys in which he does not participate, end quote. So actually sitting down and talking with five or six people can lead you to insights rather cheaply that you wouldn't get if you were surveying tens of thousands of people. When asked for advice for young people later on in his career, Ogilvy continued to suggest this idea that research is really important. He wrote, quote, Set yourself to becoming the best informed person in the agency on the account to which you are assigned. If, for example, it is a gasoline account, read books on oil geology and the production of petroleum products. Read the trade journals in the field. Spend Saturday mornings in service stations talking to motorists. Visit your clients' refineries and research laboratories. At the end of your first year, you will know more about the oil business than your boss and be ready to succeed him, end quote. Naturally, Ogilvy extended this interest, this deep dive, this obsession with things to advertising too. He said, quote, I read every book that has ever been published on the subject of advertising, and I was really a student of it, end quote. The research, the conversations, the study, those were the journey. And the destination for this journey was the city of empathy. Population, one customer. 
Ogilvy learned the magic of empathy early on. During one shift in the French kitchen, a recruiter showed up looking for someone to sell aga cookers. This is like a stove that was pretty expensive for the time. And Ogilvy signed on. He traded his chopping knife for door knockers. He was a good salesman. He even wrote a guide for his fellow salesmen, advising them to, quote, find out all you can about your prospects before you call on them, their general living conditions, wealth, profession, hobbies, friends, and so on. Every hour spent in this kind of research will help you impress your prospect, end quote. Among other suggestions to a really entertaining guide, Ogilvy advised to, quote, learn to recognize vegetarians on site, end quote. And in this Aga Cooker guide, which is partially republished in one of his books. He uh, he says, well, if, if you come to a house and uh, the housewife is home, you want to tell her th- these things. If you come and there's a gr- group of people, you tell them these things. If, if you come and it's an elderly person and they're concerned about mm, not outliving their cooker, you say how safe it is and how this can be a fairly family heirloom to pass on. So he has all these wonderful, all these great ideas for how to sell these cookers to different people. But you had to know who you were approaching if you uh, were going to use these different tactics. Adopting the client's point of view was something that appeared often in his writings. In a 1965 note to Cliff Field, who was the creative head of Ogilvy and Mather, uh, David wrote, quote, Cliff, so-and-so thinks this is a great advertisement. I don't. It lacks charm. It plods. Heavy as lead. The models, most of them, look like automobile dealers from South Dakota. Not the way to capture the affections of the people who read The New Yorker, end quote. It wasn't, do I like this advertisement, but will people who read The New Yorker like this advertisement? Ogilvy would drive, cook, or walk a mile in his customer's shoes. Quote, I always use my client's products. Almost everything I consume is manufactured by one of my clients. My shirts are by Hathaway, my candlesticks by Steuben, my car is a Rolls Royce, and its tank is always full of super shell. End quote. Ogilvy also tried to think like the brands he represented. Quote, the recommendations we make to clients are the recommendations we would make if we owned their companies. Without regard to our own short-term interest, the CERN's their respect, which is the greatest asset an agency can have. End quote. The most successful agencies, he wrote, quote, show the most sensitive insight in the psychological makeup of the prospective client, end quote. Sometimes that meant assigning people with better insight than himself, Ogilvy explained, quote, at the age of 51, I am finding it increasingly difficult to tune into the minds of young married couples who are starting out in life. That is why most of the copywriters at our agency are so young. They understand the psychology of the young consumers better than I do, end quote. And then he, um, he wrote in another book, quote, It costs $500,000 to launch a new pattern on Reed and Barton flatware. And no male executive can predict what patterns will appeal to 19-year-old brides, end quote. The goal of this level of empathy, this understanding to deliver something to the customer, was, was bringing value to those people. Clients hired David Ogilvy not to run discounts. They hired David Ogilvy to build their brands. Ogilvy wrote, quote, any damn fool can put on a price reduction, but it takes brains and perseverance to create a brand, end quote. For his customers, customers value meant a benefit. He wrote, quote, the key to success is to promise the consumer a benefit, like better flavor, whiter wash, more miles per gallon, a better complexion, end quote. This is reason why advertising, and it was a big part of Ogilvy's portfolio. 
An early experience in the French kitchen set the mold for this delivering value mindset. He was once about to tell a server to explain to a customer that they were out of something when the head chef collared Ogilvy and explained it this way, quote, the next time you see that we are running out of the plate du jour, come and tell me. I will then get on the telephone to other hotels and restaurants until I find one which has the same dish on its menu. Then I will send you in a taxi to bring back a supply. Never again tell a waiter that we are fresh out of anything." End quote. Good research leads to empathy, and empathy leads to value. But this process of research and empathy and building brands takes a lot of work. It takes a lunch pail, show up to work every day kind of attitude. Art isn't divine. Art is many drafts. The word creativity, wrote Ogilvy, quote, strikes me as a highfalutin word for the work I have to do between now and Tuesday, end quote. According to Ogilvy, good ideas are the offspring of luck and midnight oil. Fellow Ogilvy and Mather employees noticed these long hours, the homework that he did, and the output of the man in charge, just as Ogilvy did in the French kitchen. After some success, one executive led Ogilvy and wrote in his goodbye note to David, quote, you set the pace on doing homework. It's a disconcerting experience to spend a Saturday evening in the garden next door to your house, carousing for four hours while you sit, unmoving, at your desk by the window doing your homework. Ogilvy, inspired by his time at Princeton and working for George Gallup, realized that consumer research, product research, and synthesizing and understanding them and bringing them together was the key for his agency. He did those things because it leads us to our second big point, and that is to create big ideas, to create different ideas. David Ogilvy wanted all of his advertisers, copywriters, and research to generate big ideas. A lack of big ideas meant death. He wrote, quote, It is sad that the majority of men who are responsible for advertising today both the agents and the clients are so conventional. The business community wants remarkable advertising, but turns a cold shoulder to the kind of people who can produce it, end quote. To get big and different ideas, an organization needed to reward that kind of thinking. In a speech to American Express executives, Ogilvy elected himself vice president of revolution. And in that role, he asked each division head to consider this, quote, do I encourage my people to bombard me with new ideas? Is the atmosphere around here creative and innovative or dull and bureaucratic? Walter Risden recently said, There's no reason you can't have an innovative bureaucracy if you put out the word that fame and fortune come from rocking the boat. End quote. Ogilvy would do whatever he could to help clients take risks. When a representative of the Hathaway Shirt Company visited Ogilvy, he offered only a little bit of money but even less feedback. Promising not to change a word of the copy, he became one of Ogilvy's clients. And this marriage of willing client and creative agent would conceive Hathaway's Man with the Eye Patch, one of the longest-running advertising campaigns in history. If a client was somewhat reluctant to allow Ogilvy to have these big and different ideas, he said that you can convince them if you rely on consumer research, if you show them why big or different is a good idea. Ogilvy's big and different ideas needed the raw materials of research, but they also needed time to stew. He brought up the value of the unconscious, of getting your best ideas in the shower or driving. One night, he was riding the train home and, quote, 
I suddenly had the idea for an ad, which was the guide to oysters. I was so astounded by the idea that I got off the train at the next stop and called into the office, end quote. Ogilvy wrote to, quote, stuff your conscious mind with information, then unhook your rational thought process. You can help this process by going for a long walk, or taking a hot bath, or drinking half a pint of wine. Suddenly, if the telephone line from your unconscious is open, a big idea wells up within you, end quote. He had the idea for the Pepperidge Farm Baker. You can imagine this is the uh, baker driving the horse-drawn wagon. He said he dreamed up that idea in his sleep. He woke up and wrote down the idea. Each of these ideas, the Guinness poster of oysters, a shirt model with an eye patch, a 20-year-old Rolls-Royce quote were novel. These kinds of big and different ideas, Ogilvy wrote, quote, most likely to be found among nonconformist dissenters and rebels, end quote. And then he continued, too many businessmen are, quote, incapable of original thinking because they are unable to escape from the tyranny of reason, end quote. Yet that's the path to success. Greatness in advertising is to be different, and copying or being orthodox will only lead to failure. Sometimes we think being different means being artistic, but that is definitely not the case when it comes to David Ogilvy's advice. To turn consumer research into advertising campaigns was like taking flour and water and turning it into bread. The question was what type? Loaves? Biscuits? Pastry? For David Ogilvy, the goal, the type of advertising that he wanted, always led to sales. He loathed advertisements that looked good for the sake of looking good. He even sometimes declined industry nominations. He wrote, quote, I no longer enter my agency's layouts into contests organized by art director societies for fear that one of them might be disgraced by an award. Their gods are not my gods, end quote. For Ogilvy, there were two big problems in advertising that he was writing about um, in some of his reflections. Uh, one was discounting that masqueraded as advertisement, and then this is the second quote. The second problem is that advertising agencies are now infested with people who regard advertising as an avant-garde art form. Their ambition is to win awards at the Cannes Festival, end quote. He wants people to resist the temptation to write copy that wins awards. He continues, quote, I am always gratified when I win an award, but most of the campaigns which produce results never win awards because they don't draw attention to themselves, end quote. According to David Ogilvy, good advertising campaigns are like sports referees. You need them to help the process along, but in the best outcomes, viewers don't notice. Sometimes beautiful images catch attention. In a noising world, this can be tempting. Ogilvy strove for something else, though, something he called story appeal. He writes, quote, Dr. Gallup has discovered that the kind of photographs which win awards from camera clubs don't work in advertisements. What does work are photographs which arouse readers' curiosity, end quote. Like, why does that man in that picture have an eye patch on? The eye patch was Ogilvy's 17th idea and the first with real story appeal. Not everything needs a good image, though. If you asked Ogilvy what makes a good picture, he'd turn the question around and ask you what the research suggests. In the 50s, 60s, and 70s, when Ogilvy was at his peak, the research said pictures over drawings, images above copy, and headlines written in clear language. Ogilvy was big on not big headlines, but good headlines. Clarity, simplicity, and familiarity are the holy trinity at the temple of words and the religion of Ogilvy. He was aware 
of jargon from his days selling aga cookers, and he writes, quote, Some salesmen expounded their subjects academically so that at the end the prospect feels no more inclination to buy the aga than she would to buy the planet of Jupiter after a broadcast from the astronomer Royale, end quote. Instead, think conversationally. What should the aga salesman do? Quote, you must be specific, definite, and factual. The prospect is not interested in your personal opinion as to what or is not expensive for her, end quote. You have to deliver value. You have to tell the customer something, and you have to do it in clear, normal language. In an ad for Dove Soap, the headline was, quote, Darling, I'm having the most extraordinary experience, end quote. Why did he use those words? Ogilvy explained, quote, I use the word darling for this ad because a psychologist had tested hundreds of words for their emotional impact, and darling had come out on top, end quote. But had the word been cherub or some other oblique, obtuse, or opaque term, he'd never have used it. You have to write like people talk. Ogilvy hated capital letters, and he said that they're hard to read if you have a headline that's in all caps, and that's not really how we talk in all caps, except on the internet. In fact, we don't even necessarily need to spell the words the right way. We've all seen those images or those um, word presentations where things aren't spelled perfectly, but they're still legible. Ogilvy had these rules or suggestions for how to write copy and how to write headlines. But anytime you hear someone talking about Ogilvy's rules, you should definitely ignore them. Ogilvy's first principle was to ask, what appeals to the customer? And you need to let your rules follow that. Then you can pick up another principle of Ogilvy's, and that is to experiment and test. He wrote, quote, the most important word in the vocabulary of advertising is test, end quote. Yet many advertisers don't do that. They're worried about, among other things, their egos and winning awards. However, there is one group that understands testing, and that's direct marketers. Ogilvy writes, quote, That's why I think everyone should start their advertising career in direct response, because in direct response you test all the time and develop the habit of testing, end quote. Testing is hard. It could upset the ego equilibrium. Advertisers need to test. Customers change. Products change. Ogilvy wrote, quote, Keep your mind open because advertising will always be full of surprises, end quote. Ogilvy ran his own A-B tests. Quote, When in doubt as to which two illustrations to use, test the relative polling power by split-running them in a newspaper, end quote. He was also big on issuing coupons and keeping track of coupon redemptions. Nowadays, it's, uh, it's, podcast product redemptions, where after you hear this ad for Squarespace Audible Casper mattresses, make sure you enter such and such and such a name into the box at checkout. And that's all about testing. These are ideas that Ogilvy had 50 years ago. Much of Ogilvy's writings about testing things that make good headlines and copy, and the lunch pail attitude of hard work, and the value of research was to his staff at Ogilvy and Mather. He wanted people to learn what he knew. These ideas could only grow in the right environment, though, and the Ogilvy and Mather culture would be the greenhouse for these seedlings. This brings us to our third big idea, and that's the importance of culture. At some point in his or her career, each head of an office would meet with David Ogilvy, usually in their office, not his, and he would give them a stack of Russian nesting dolls. Each manager would open the largest, and then the next largest, and so on, and the dolls would get smaller and smaller and smaller. And in the final doll would be a slip of paper. It read this, quote, 
If each of us hires people who are smaller than we are, we shall become a company of dwarfs. But if each of us hires people who are bigger than we are, Ogilvy and Mather will become a company of giants." End quote. This was his warning about ego. Hire people who are better than you. Hire people who can do your job. Listen to the people below you. As Ogilvy and Mather grew, he learned the advantage of decentralized command. Decentralized command is a military principle that individuals present for a situation know more about the situation than those not present. Ogilvy noticed the importance of this in a 1958 letter to the staff titled How to Be Helpful at Meetings. He wrote, quote, Junior people should not hesitate to speak out. For example, if they disagree with something I am saying, they should say so before it is too late. Very often I lack information which is available to them, end quote. In one of his books, written decades later, he still gave this advice, quote, It is vitally important to encourage free communication upward. Encourage your people to be candid with you. Ask their advice and listen to it, end quote. Decentralized command requires the right corporate culture. It can only work in organizations which reward big ideas, new research, and mistakes. When asked what makes the Ogilvy and Mather culture successful, David wrote, quote, We give our executives an extraordinary degree of freedom and independence, end quote. And then he continued, quote, After 14 years on Madison Avenue, I have come to the conclusion that the top man has one principal responsibility, to provide an atmosphere in which creative mavericks can do useful work. End quote. What makes decentralized command work isn't just the environment, but the people in it too. When Ogilvy hired people, he looked for what he called gentlemen with brains. This is where he got the idea. Quote, I have always tried to hire what J.P. Morgan called gentlemen with brains, Brains, it doesn't necessarily mean a high IQ. It means curiosity, common sense, wisdom, imagination, and literacy, end quote. Remember, Ogilvy said he doesn't necessarily want education in the form of schooling. He wants well-furnished minds, and it doesn't matter if that knowledge came from college or selling newspapers. Within Ogilvy and Mather, David tried to keep the right balance between creative and account executives. Quote, if you were a dairy farmer and kept cows, would you employ twice as many milkers as you have cows? End quote. So what he's creating here is a place where people can be given work to do. And because you've hired the right people, you've hired these gentlemen with brains who may have learned everything they know from delivering newspapers, you give them the autonomy to do the work. And you don't have a bunch of middle management mucking things up. In addition to the right internal people, he aimed for the right external people, too. He admitted that in the early days he had to take whatever clients he could, but even then he was thinking about who he might want to work for. An adage he often repeated was, quote, first-class business in a first-class way, end quote. And in another source, he explained, quote, the great thing is to have the right clients. There are plenty of agencies and plenty of clients. The thing is to match them up so the relationship is a good one, end quote. That meant clients who let you do the work in the same way that Ogilvy let the people in the organization chart under him do their work with autonomy. When he was hired by a client, he wanted that same autonomy. He was advising potential clients this way, quote, why keep a dog and bark for yourself, end quote. This was the deal Ogilvy made with Hathaway and part of the reason the campaign flourished in the way it did. Part of the reason he was able to recruit gentlemen with brains was because he made Ogilvy and Mayer a fun place to work. Quote, when people aren't having fun, they don't produce good advertising, end quote. Part of the reason I think that Ogilvy thought that his company was a fun place to work was that Ogilvy really, really enjoyed advertising. At the age of 75, reflecting from his home in France, he said, quote, retiring can be fatal, end quote. 
in another source, he's asked for advice for what to do when someone isn't performing well, and he suggests demoting them, and then answering a potential follow-up question himself. He explains that it won't feel that bad. Think about it this way. Quote, there are worse things than loss of face, like staying home and having absolutely nothing to do and no interest in life and being lonely and out of touch with all the people you like, and so forth, end quote. Ogilvy's advantage was being David Ogilvy, not because of any innate talent. He once scored a 96 on a self-administered IQ test. His advantage was doing what he loved, and he looked for people with the same kind of interest. Quote, my success or failure as a head of an agency depends more than anything else on my ability to find people who can create great campaigns, men with fire in their bellies, end quote. It's hard work, but it's worth the work to build the right culture. What a good culture does, what a good advertising agency culture does, is building brands up, not marking prices down. Discounting, if you recall, is the first problem with advertising, and then the second was choosing personal artistry over customer curiosity. And Ogilvy was fond of reminding people, quote, any damn fool can put on a deal, but it takes genius, faith, and perseverance to create a brand, end quote. Brand building was getting dirty digging the foundation. Deal cutting is superficially painting the facade. In speaking to American Express executives, he asked and answered, What's so great about short-term profits? Quote, I'll tell you, they impress the jackasses on Wall Street. End quote. Actions for short-term goals, like profits, also serve the individual more than the firm, and that's not something Ogilvy wanted to encourage. He wrote, quote, Why are so many brand builders addicted to price-cutting deals? Because the men who employ them are more interested in next quarter's earnings than in building their brands. Why are they so obsessed with next quarter's earnings? Because they are more concerned with their stock options and the future of their company. Deals are a drug, end quote. Here, Ogilvy ate his own cooking. He hired gentlemen to do the difficult things. The short and easy, he wrote, quote, can never do Ogilvy and Mather any permanent good, end quote. Around 1950, Ogilvy came up with what he called his creative credo, and the, the first part was this, quote, every advertisement is part of the long-term investment in the personality of the brand. We hold that every advertisement must be considered as a contribution to the complex symbol which is the brand image, as part of the long-term investment in the reputation of the brand. I find that if you take that long-term approach, a great many of the day-to-day creative questions answer themselves." Brand building is hard work. It's easier to inflate numbers and egos by offering discounts rather than building value the hard way. But that's not what David Ogilvy existed to do. David Ogilvy existed to work in the kind of company that he created. To summarize, David Ogilvy pioneered advertising processes that led to great outcomes. The images, headlines, and copy are celebrated, but it's the process that matters most. Do objective research have big ideas, and groom a culture among gentlemen with brains. Ogilvy's greatest advertisement is his body of work, and we get that for free. That's a good deal. Thanks for listening. Well, that's very nice. Thank you very much. Now, why don't you make like a tree and get out of here? It's leave, you idiot. Make like a tree and leave. You sound like a damn fool when you say it wrong. All right, then, leave! And take your book with you.